Let me say a couple of things before we dive into this morning's message. <clears throat> the first is I want to welcome home Mark Bell and Catherine Mueller Bell. Just got back from a mission trip to Zambia. <clears throat> Mark just gave me this uh, African shirt. I'm not going to put it on because he told me if he put it on today, I won't get it off. So <laughs> but I'm going to leave it here and I'll explain why in a few minutes, okay? So you can see it. It does look cool. Uh, uh, also, I want to thank those of you who uh, registered for the Global Leadership Summit, which is going to happen in August uh, 8th and 9th. Uh, last week, we needed about 20 people to register so that we would qualify for some of the equipment that they roll in for all that. And uh, we got all of that. We've got 55 people that are registered now, and we've got some momentum on that. And I'd really urge you to come. I'd like to talk about that for just a minute. Um, the Global Leadership Summit started as a conference for pastors, but it is not a conference for pastors anymore. That was 25 years ago. One of the things that they realized within a few years was that most of the pastors that were attending were bringing people with them, and they were business people from the church. And so as the summit grew larger and larger, they shifted the content. So somewhere about 75% of the content is aimed at men and women who are working in the business world trying to think through, how do I impact my world, my business, my community for Christ? How do I live out my faith in that context? And I would really urge you to come because the core principle behind the Leadership Summit is this idea that everybody has influence. And how do you maximize your influence within your context? Yes, there is also Christian content in there. Yes, there are a few pieces for pastors like me, but it's more for you than for me. And I think we have a congregation filled with leaders and emerging leaders, and I'd really urge you to come. You get an $89 price through June 25th. The code that you need is written inside the announcement in our bulletin. It's uh, um, GLS 19 team or something like that. I probably said it backwards. But if you put that in when you go to our website on the events page, you need that code to get the $89 price. After June 25th, the price jumps about $30. So the, the next couple of weeks are the time to do that. Um, and I just want to underscore uh, Todd's announcement about the Father's Day car show. One of the reasons why that event landed on Father's Day was to do something special for fathers. <laughs> And uh, one of the cool things last year was watching all of the grandfathers and fathers and grandsons and whole families, many people who've never set foot on our campus before, uh, coming and joining us. But it was designed for you, Dad, first. And uh, yeah, it's gotten big. It's gotten much bigger. So it is becoming one of those all-hands-on-decks kind of event because it gives us a great opportunity to invite all kinds of people here where their first taste of North River will be on Father's Day. Let me pray, and then we're going to dive into this morning's message. Father God, thank you so much for this congregation of people, for the faith and knowledge that you have built in so many. Thank you for the experiences that we have had thus far with Jesus and for the ways that he meets us at our point of need and build strength into our lives where once something was lacking. Thank you for calling us into a faith that grows, into a faith that leads into a powerful sense of hope, 
into a faith that transforms our daily existence. This morning as we gather together, we, we gather with the knowledge that Jesus is enough, and yet we gather with the knowledge that there are many people in our world who either do not believe in Jesus at all or who want to add something to our faith so that we opt for Jesus and. and forgive us for every time that we think it takes Jesus and something else to truly satisfy. I pray that you would increase our knowledge and our acceptance of the way that you're working in our lives today as a result of our time here, and that you will further equip us to live out our faith in the age in which you have placed us, to know our place and our time and our mission and to serve you well. Grant us the wisdom that we need with the choices that are before us today or with the challenges that some are facing. We pray for an outpouring of strength into Barb's life and Karen's life and others who are struggling with long-term illnesses. Lord, there are probably some people here sitting in silence who have not told anybody that they're struggling with some great crisis right now. And I pray that they would have a sense today of your presence, of your power, of the hope that truly comes from knowing you and from being included by faith in Christ. I pray that you will use this morning's message and the power of the word far greater than you can use my ability to write or speak and that you will communicate to us in ways that strike each of us deeply, profoundly, and forever. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a scene in the movie, Meet the Parents, a 2000 film starring Ben Stiller and Robert De Niro, when Stiller's character, Greg Fokker, has come to visit his girlfriend's home for the first time. And as they sit down to dinner, he's asked to say grace. Being relatively unfamiliar with the concept of saying grace, Greg leans on the first thought, the best thought that comes to his mind. And so in a rather humorous scene, he begins to recite the lyrics from a song that he heard a long while back from Godspell. It's the song Day by Day. And Greg recites it more or less as a prayer. Many of you probably remember the song. It goes something like this. Day by day, day by day, oh dear Lord, three things I pray, to see thee more clearly, love thee more dearly, follow thee more nearly, day by day, day by day, by day by day by day. Wow. I have a question for you. Which is it? Is it a song or is it a prayer? Some of you are going, I'm not sure. Some are saying both. If you said both, you're, you're actually more right than you ever knew. Well, the song was written in 1971 and the musical came out in 1972. The prayer that the song is based on is actually much, much older. Richard of Chichester was the author of that prayer. He was a 13th century scholar who taught at the University of Oxford and also in Paris. 
And he was known for his simplicity of lifestyle, his vegetarian diet, and for his burning desire to know Christ in his life. Eventually, he became the Roman Catholic Bishop of Chichester in England. Near the end of his life, he wrote this prayer that he quoted daily and prayed on his deathbed. And this is the prayer. Thanks be to you, my Lord Jesus Christ, for all the benefits which you have given me, for all the pains and insults you have borne for me, O most merciful Redeemer, friend, and brother. May I know you more clearly, love you more dearly, and follow you more nearly. Richard's friends and followers continued to use this prayer for years afterward, even adding this phrase, day by day, three things I pray, hence all of the notes that were taken into the Godspell song. Now, that, that song, day by day, and Richard's prayer, each include this grand desire to see thee more clearly, he wrote. Think of one of the songs that we sang at the opening part of this service. That we were calling on God, open up the heavens, we want to see you. It's an ancient cry. You can find similar cries from David that go back to Psalm 119. You know, Lord, we want to see you clearly in our lives. That desire is the key thought behind this new series of messages that we're beginning today. The series is called Getting Clear on Jesus. I can't think of any greater goal. If you're new to all of this, I can't think of any greater goal than getting clear on who Jesus Christ really is. If you're a longtime believer, I can't think of a greater goal for you in this age of confusion and all the data that begins to fill our heads. Imagine if you got clearer on the concept of who Jesus is. I can't think of a greater concept for your friends that you know that you've been talking to about church, you've been wondering, when do I invite them? Invite them for this series. Imagine what would happen if your, your friend who is confused about faith, who's been wandering around in something else, who doesn't think that Jesus really matters, could get 25 or 50 or 75% clearer in their minds about Jesus. Think this is a big deal? I do. I love this letter of Colossians. And we're going to work our way for the next 10 weeks or so through Paul's letter to the Colossian church because the central concept, the central theme of this letter is about clarity in regard to Jesus. Now, Paul wrote this letter for a reason. So let's dive into the reason for the letter. Uh, actually, two that we're going to share here this morning. The first is that Paul had some history with this specific group of people. Verse 7 cues us in on that. Verse 7 says, You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf. Paul had not started the church in Colossae. During Paul's two-year ministry in Ephesus, two men from Colossae had visited Paul. Their names were Epaphras and Philemon, and their hometown was Colossae. So here's one of the really cool things about this specific church. It was not started by pastors. It was not started by apostles. It was started by two business people in the church who, or in the community who heard Paul speaking in Ephesus and they took the news with them back to their hometown of Colossae, and a healthy, vibrant church emerged after a few years of their teaching. Colossae was about 80 miles away from Ephesus. Both of these towns were located in, in the Lycus River Valley in what today would be western Turkey. So when Paul wrote his New Testament letter to Philemon that happens near the back end of the New Testament, 
he was writing to his friend who was back in this town in regard to some of the issues that were going on in Colossae. And I have to tell you, Colossae was a place with issues. This was a church with issues. You ever hear somebody complain about the church and say, oh, that church has all kinds of issues. There are all kinds of things going on in the American church today. I can't go there. Have you ever found a church that didn't have issues? There was a women's study that we had uh, uh, a while back. She's got issues. Ladies, I've got to tell you something. The guys in this room have issues too. We all have issues. And the church in Colossae had issues, and that shouldn't scare us off. Because guess what? Living out our faith today in this world, in this culture, 2,000 years after these letters were, were written, we still have issues in terms of how we understand Jesus today. So this vibrant, new, thriving church had emerged without Paul's help. And Paul has been advising these two men, Epaphras and Philemon, and it seems natural that they reached out to Paul when they got into trouble and there was something they couldn't solve, and so Paul is writing this letter to them. Here's the second reason for the letter. The Colossian church was dealing with false teachers. This was a specific issue. The problem came from false teachers who were promoting an early form of something called Gnosticism. The word Gnostic comes from the Greek word that means knowledge. And these teachers claimed that they had a higher knowledge that was beyond Christian teaching. And they taught that people who adopted Gnosticism were in the know. Doesn't that sound seductive? You can be in the know. You can be in the group that has the full message. Now, hear what I'm saying and what I'm not saying. We are not talking against the idea of pluralism. You and I live in a pluralistic age. There are many other religions. There are many people who are part of our country who, who worship through other religions. We can handle that. That's fine. In fact, we can even learn from other religions because there's some nugget of truth in there that can benefit everybody. Pluralism doesn't threaten us because within a pluralistic society, we can say, this is my faith, this is what it's based on. We can rely on the Holy Spirit, invite people to check out the source of our faith, which is the Word of God, and they can come to decisions on their own. Well, Paul was dealing with, with something different, not pluralism, but what is called syncretism. Syncretism occurs when people take a little bit of this and a little bit of that and a little bit of Christianity, we try to mix it all together. And so they were taking some of the mystery religions of Asia and they were taking some of the philosophies that had developed and a little bit of Judaism and a little bit of Christianity and they were putting that together and trying to say to the Christian church, we've got something that's better than what you're doing and if you really want to be an in-the-know Christian, forget about this stuff that Paul and the disciples are teaching. We've got the higher knowledge. That's a problem. That's what they were dealing with in Colossae. So what did the Gnostics teach? It would take more time than I have, but I'm going to give you just a couple of thoughts. Their teaching held that the spiritual realm up there was pure, while the earth and matter was all evil. And so they had a dualistic worldview, that the spiritual realm was all good, the earthly realm, including human beings, were all tarnished by evil. So they had a very low view of people, a very low view of this world around us. There were some problems that came from that. People who held that believed that God could not have created the earth 
So there must be some lower spiritual being who was truly the creator because this being uh, would have been several lowers, uh, levels lower than God, not as pure and as holy as God, and therefore they could have uh, things to do with the earth and with people who live on this earth. The second problem was, if Jesus was really God's son, then he could not have a human body because the body was seen as evil. This led to Gnostic ideas that Jesus was a ghost-like phantom, that he had nothing to do with the creation or that his incarnation, his miraculous birth through Mary and the Holy Spirit was not real. And ultimately, that Jesus could not die on the cross for your sins. In short, they were saying, this form of Jesus who takes on human flesh is not enough. In Gnostic people, in teaching, people were taught that they could start with Jesus and then they could work their way up toward God through other spiritual beings who are higher than Jesus and closer to God, and that's where the real benefit would come. There's a mix of Jewish legalism, astrology, Eastern mysticism, and a little bit of Christianity. And this is why Epaphras and Philemon called for Paul's help, because they were over their heads suddenly with this new seductive teaching that was working their way into their church, and they were grappling with the message that was beginning to spread, and, and they wanted help. Okay, so here in the first eight verses that we're looking at this morning, there are three principles that Paul wanted to stress to the people in Colossae that are still relevant to us today. Here's the first one. Our identity in Christ. Our identity in Christ. The first two verses uh, bear this out. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, Grace and peace to you from God our Father. First, Paul stresses his authority as an apostle. If you're familiar with a number of the New Testament letters, he doesn't do this all the time. Most of the time, Paul begins his letters by saying, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. Paul, a bond slave of Christ Jesus. This time, he pulls out the apostle card. and He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. Why did he do that? Because people were claiming that they had a higher knowledge than Paul and the apostles who had walked with Jesus. And so he's reminding them where his authority comes from, that he had been directly commissioned by Jesus, that he had met Jesus and had that miraculous encounter on the Damascus Road. Next, Paul reminds them that they are holy people set apart by God. Some of you were here a few weeks ago when we tapped into a lesson from Colossians chapter 3, and I asked some of you to memorize verse 12, which has three great bold truths in there, that we are chosen, holy, remember the third one, and dearly loved. And I, and I asked the question, what would happen if you began every single day beginning with that kind of Christ esteem and being reminded that in his eyes we are, we are chosen, holy, and dearly loved, that a lot of the stuff that we allow to get inside our heads would probably be driven out, the negatives about our identity, about our confidence, if we just believed those three things that the Bible says about us. And we talked about being holy, that holy doesn't mean we are perfect. Holy doesn't mean that we are better than everybody else. Holy has more to do with being set aside for God's purposes. So think of it. We used the illustration back then of the temple in Jerusalem, and there are a number of 
dishes and cups and silverware and all kinds of things that were dedicated to the Lord and they were sanctified and set apart as holy. It didn't mean that their craftsmanship was perfect. It does, didn't mean that somehow when, when the plates went through the kiln that they were better than all other plates. It meant that they were reserved to the Lord's use. And so in the same way, when you are a Christ follower, you are set aside for God's purpose. He has a purpose for you. You are considered holy, not because of the perfection of your own life or my life, but because of what God is doing within us. There are three aspects to our holiness that come out of uh, the teaching of the New Testament. The first is the idea of our positional holiness. We are declared to be holy by the righteousness of Christ in our lives. In other words, God sees us through Jesus Christ and sees us as the completed project we will one day be. But right now, progressively, we are being made holy by the work of the Holy Spirit, little by little, by the presence of Christ in our lives. But that project won't be done until the day when you and I see him face to face. In other words, most of us are going to die still in process, right? When we see him, our perfect holiness will be revealed because the Bible says we will be like Jesus. Hold on to that thought for a minute. Think about what that means. When the Bible tells us that we are declared to be holy by God and that we will one day stand in his presence, it means that God doesn't want to just sprinkle a little Jesus dust on you and make your life a little bit better. His final project, which will not be completed until you and I stand in his presence, is that you and I will be like Jesus. We won't be gods, but we will be holy. We will be able to stand in the presence of an almighty, absolutely holy God. That's the goal that he has for you and me. That's how far he wants to take us. And God already sees us through that lens. Third, Paul reminds them that they are brothers and sisters in Christ. There is an essential bond between Christ followers all around the world. That's why I wanted to bring up this gift from Mark and Catherine that he just gave me a, a few minutes ago. What they experienced in Zambia was this incredible bond with other Christians in another place around the world. And it's one of the things that happens to you and me when we travel to a new city or a new country and you happen to get together with other Christians, even though sometimes there's a culture barrier, a language barrier, there, there's a, you know, we speak Bostonian and other people speak Southern. Nonetheless, we can get together and have the same kind of faith, be accepted with each other, and instantly feel this kinship with them. And Paul is reminding the church in Colossae, you're not alone. There are others, and God is working through other people. And the way that we experience this is through our status of being in Christ. And in Christ, we are new creatures. In Christ, we belong to something bigger than ourselves. In Christ, our experience of Jesus is enough. To be in Christ is to partake in one of the greatest mysteries that could ever exist, of how God sees us united to him forevermore. And being in Christ is reason for us to celebrate today. And then there's a fourth little piece of information that Paul gives in this first section, these first two verses. He sends this greeting. Grace and peace to you from God our Father. Notice that Paul starts with grace, not with peace. There's a reason for that. Our experience of peace rises from his empowering grace. 
Kent Hughes, who was my pastor in my college years for a couple of years, wrote this in one of his books. Among the tragedies of our time is humanity's pursuit of personal peace apart from God's enabling grace. In other words, we live in an age that's always looking for shortcuts rather than coming through the process that God has set up for us. Sinners find peace as a result of experiencing God's grace. And this is always a cause for rejoicing. So the proper greeting that he gives is grace and peace to you from God our Father. Grace and peace to you from God our Father. I want to do a little experiment here. Some of you have been in churches that we consider higher churches in terms of their formality. And often there's a, a giving of the peace moment. You know what I'm talking about in the service? Where you, you're instructed to stand up and say hello to somebody else and, and offer them the peace of God. I've been in churches where we did that. I don't mean to be making fun. Where it wasn't a very enthusiastic peace. It was like, gotcha, or you know, peace be with you. And then we all sit down. Here's, here's the, the greeting, though. Grace and peace to you from God our Father. So let's do something ancient, something that's a little more formal than we usually do. I'm going to ask you to get up out of your chair and offer to somebody grace and peace from God our Father. Grace and peace. Come on. So you know what's cool about that? Do you feel the energy that just happened in this room? When people who've really experienced the grace of God and who have some measure of the peace of God offer that to somebody else, there's something real and powerful there. I saw hugs happening. I saw laughter. I saw smiles. I saw people getting out of their chairs and going to find somebody they didn't know in order to offer the grace and peace that comes from God our Father. Here's the second principle that Paul wanted to stress. The evidence of faith, love, and hope. We pick this up in verse 3. He writes, we always thank God, the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. So he's acknowledging that he was praying for the church in Colossae right along, and now he's going to continue on in that spirit of prayer. Because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven. Notice how Paul launches into a prayer of thanksgiving. He didn't immediately address the theological problem of Gnosticism. He let them know that his first response was to bring them to God in prayer. Now, folks, we live in a day where a lot of people scoff at the role of prayer. The prayer doesn't really have value. Prayer doesn't really have meaning. Sometimes it comes out where people try to take apart another part of the New Testament and play that off against us. So they'll say, your prayers don't mean anything, and they'll quote uh, James chapter 2, saying that faith without works is dead. That principle is true, that a faith that is never backed up by action is merely dead faith. But James never says that about prayer. The same James writes a couple chapters later that the prayer of a faithful and righteous person is effective. And it, uh, the King James says, it availeth much. So when you hear somebody say, 
We're tired of your prayers. Don't, please don't listen to them. That's a very non-biblical idea. Prayer is important. And Paul didn't immediately rush over to Colossae. He prayed for them, and he'd probably been praying for them for some time before he even wrote this letter. Then Paul reminds them of the evidence of what I'm going to call the big three. Faith, hope, and love. New Testament scholars refer to faith, hope, and love as the apostolic shorthand for genuine Christianity. In other words, when all three of these are seen as operative within a church community, there's a pretty high chance that this is real Christianity that you're experiencing. Not perfect, just real. Why? None of these three things in the context and the description that the New Testament uses can be manufactured. They all come from God. Even the faith that we have comes from God opening up the eyes so that we can see what he wants us to see. Hope comes from God. The deepest, highest kind of love, the agape love that comes from outside of ourselves, comes from God, fills us up, we give it away, and he resupplies more as often as we ask. For faith to be effective, it must be placed in Christ as God's solution to our need, to our need for grace. Bible translator John Patton notes that faith is, quote, to lean your whole weight upon. I like that. Faith is to lean your whole weight upon. In other words, to lean completely into Jesus Christ so that you fall and rest in him. Sometimes when I'm describing faith to somebody, I'll, I'll grab a chair. And I'll, I'll tell them, you came into the room and you sat in my office and you sat down in that chair. And when you did that, something rather instantaneous happened. You made a split-second calculation that the chair would hold you. But until that moment, you were holding yourself up with your legs and all of the strength, all the power was placed on you. The burden was on you to hold yourself up. But the moment that you sat down, you trusted that the chair could do that for you. That's what faith in Christ is like. Until that moment, we're in the self-salvation business, but at the moment that you lean wholly on Christ, you trust on him to be your salvation. You, you trust in him to be the solution to our problem that, that God actually provided. So here, Paul is talking about faith, and then he moves from faith to love. Love for other brothers and sisters in Christ is the next sign of authentic Christianity. Paul specifically notes that these Colossian Christians were known for their love for all God's people. Another translation puts it this way, the love you have for all the saints. Loving God must always be matched by loving our neighbors. In his book, Born Again, Chuck Colson told of one of the first experiences that he had of this kind of love. Colson had been led to faith by Raytheon CEO Tom Phillips as the Watergate mess was exploding all around him. And then he ended up pleading guilty to one charge and he spent some time in prison. And during that time, there was very little that he could do to address the things that were going on with the people who mattered to him. Any concerns that he had with his family, with other friends, and he became discouraged and he wrote about that in his book. However, during that time, he had been adopted by a group of Christians in Washington, which included three senators in particular, Senator Hatfield, Senator Hughes, and Senator Quee, who were praying for him. And Senator Al Quee from Minnesota 
did something very unusual. He discovered an old law that allowed an innocent person to serve a prison term for someone else. And he publicly volunteered to serve out the remainder of Chuck Colson's prison term. Can you imagine that? Of course, Chuck turned down the offer. But he later wrote that, he, that through this act, he had experienced this love for all the saints that Paul writes about here in Colossians chapter 1. Finally, Paul brings up the concept of hope. This is the third part of the trio. But notice how Paul brings up hope last among these three. This is because Paul sees faith and love as springing from their hope. And so he writes uh, of the hope stored up for you in heaven. Now think where they would come from. Prior to Epaphras and Philemon hearing Paul's gospel in Ephesus and bringing it back 80 miles over to Colossae, the people in that city had been part of pagan religions and they had no hope that they be, could be connected to the eternal God, the God who, who created the world, and the God who ultimately prepares a kingdom for his followers for the rest of eternity. And then Epaphras and Philemon bring this gospel of grace in Jesus back home, and the people in Colossae begin to experience the joy of salvation and the hope of meaning to life and a hope of a place for them in the kingdom of heaven forever. So Paul reveals that faith and love grow larger and increase the more that we understand this great hope that we have. Paul wants us to understand the evidence of faith, hope, and love. Now it's here that you can see the, the main idea that I'm trying to get across this morning. Here's our big idea for today. The gospel of faith, love, and hope is enough to lift us out of our confusion and to lead us to rejoice throughout all of life. And then Paul has one final thing that he wanted to stress. The true gospel. The true gospel. So the end of verse 5 through the end of the paragraph reads this way. And about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you in the same way the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. Here Paul mentions that concept of the true message of the gospel. Why? He knew that the gospel was under attack in that particular city, that Gnostic teachers were telling them that the gospel was not enough, that Jesus was not enough. The word gospel in English literally comes from a, a word that means good news. So what's the good news? The good news is that Jesus has come in the flesh. The good news is that Jesus has really died for our sins. The good news is that Jesus has conquered sin and death by rising from that, that tomb after dying on the cross on the third day. The good news is that Jesus today reigns on high at the right hand of the Father, and he represents you and me every single day, and he prays for you and me every single day. This is unbelievably good news. In other words, you don't need to keep searching. You don't need to look for somebody higher. You don't need Jesus and. Jesus is enough. That's the whole message of Colossians. And now he says, 
This gospel, the one that you just clapped over, this gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the world. Paul was reminding them that while they were challenged and seeing hard times, nonetheless, the word of God was spreading in other places around the world. New ideas will always come, and there will always be people who are not satisfied with Jesus. But anytime you become discouraged by the growth of other religions or what seems like the lack of growth of our faith, remember this. God is at work in all kinds of places that you and I don't see. For 100, maybe close to 200 years, the United States of America was at the center of what God seemed to be doing in terms of the global movement of faith development. That's no longer necessarily true. Today, the epicenter of what God is doing in the world is in China, it's in Africa, it's in Latin America. So much so that people from those countries are sending missionaries to our countries because things are so messed up. I love it. And we should be glad about that because many of the people in those countries heard the gospel from people who are part of our land and our Christian faith who cared enough about these other saints around the world to go and share the gospel in other places. And we should not be so arrogant to think that God is always going to make what we're doing right here the epicenter of everything that he's at work at in the world. And you and I can take great heart that the gospel continues to spread. So Paul adds that this was the same gospel that they had heard from Epaphras. He will go on to address later on their concerns by writing about the role of Jesus in God's work, and that's a large part of what we're going to study. And here's, the, here's what, the, what comes at the heart of all this. The more we get clear about Jesus, the easier it is to recognize false teaching. And the more we get clear about Jesus the more we realize again and again and again one key thing, that Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough with every loss that you go through. Jesus is enough with every disappointment that we go through in life. Jesus is enough when every new idea comes up with somebody claiming they have something better. When you really know and experience the love and grace and power of Jesus. Jesus is enough. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this congregation full of people who love Jesus or who want to know Jesus better, or both. And I pray that as we study this letter over the next several weeks, that you will increase our hunger to know Jesus and our deep-seated satisfaction from discovering all the roles that he plays and how you, dear God, see him and that you will fill us with this overpowering realization that he's enough for us too. So Lord, I pray this, knowing that there may be somebody here this morning saying, wow, I've wandered far away and I've been looking for other solutions. Lord, I'm coming back, and I want to declare to you right now in the quietness of my prayer that, God, I know that Jesus is enough. And hear the person who may be considering the first time. And give that person clarity over the next few days and weeks that Jesus is enough for them too.
Guide us this week in all that we do. Help us to live out the faith that we have. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me invite our ushers to come, and this is the part of the service where we give back to God through our tithes and offerings and through all the ways that were on that chart that Todd showed you a while back. But thank you for being generous to our church. We've got one final song that we're going to sing here on the way out. Thanks for being here. Dive into this study of Colossians with us over the next few weeks.